This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you so much for joining us at Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. We are delighted today to be joined by Anne Applebaum. She writes about Ukraine in an exceptionally thorough, thoughtful, and courageous way. It's really easy to get lost in coverage of the war in Ukraine. So we hope this discussion with Anne is as clarifying for you as it was for us. And then outside of politics, we are going to talk about life and growth in the form of gardens. Before we begin that conversation, we wanted to remind you that it is the final week of our biannual premium drive. We try to take time twice a year to ask for your financial support. We have provided Pantsuit Politics twice a week for seven years for free. We put the show and all of your podcast feed available to everyone for free, and we love doing that. But it costs a lot of money to make the show. And that's why our membership community is so important, because they make the free show available. And if you would like to be a member of that group, if you would like to be a part of supporting the work we do here, of helping keep the show free in everyone's feed so that we can continue conversations together, continue conversations with this community, really just put good stuff in the river. It pays off. We get emails all the time. I ran for office because of Pantsuit Politics. I voted for the first time because of Pantsuit Politics. I had a really productive conversation (laughs) with my family member because of Pantsuit Politics. We think it's a good investment, not just because of the podcast, but because of all the impact the podcast has. And so we would love for you to join us. You would get Good Morning with me Monday through Thursday. You will get More to Say with Beth Monday through Thursday. Right now, you'd be getting succession recaps, which are so much fun. We're really proud of our premium content. We're really proud of the community there. And we're exceptionally proud of the work it makes available to all of you here at Pantsy Politics. So if you haven't joined us there already, we really hope that you will consider doing so. And as always, there is information on how to do that in our show notes. Next up, we're joined by Anne Applebaum. Anne is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's also a senior fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University, where she co-leads a project on 21st century disinformation. Her books include Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, and Gulag, A History. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. And thank you so much for joining us. I don't want to be obsequious, so I will just say that I very much admire your work, and I'm so thrilled that you're here. Thank you. (laughs) You have the cover story for the June issue of The Atlantic, and the framing is so interesting because you, you begin with the story about a grave robbery, and I wondered if you might give us that framing as you talk about your most recent trip to Ukraine. So yes, I was recently in Ukraine a few weeks ago. I went with the editor of The Atlantic, Jeff Goldberg, and we went to Kherson, which is a city in southeastern Ukraine, um, just on the Dnipro River. And one of the things that is famously true of Kherson is that it was built by Prince Potemkin, And Prince Potemkin was Catherine the Great's, he was her lover, he was a general, he was sort of the prime minister at that time, and he built Kherson, and he was the, he constructed it, he built a cathedral there, and he, until recently, was buried there. Potemkin is really the symbol of Russian imperialism and the empire because he conquered this whole part of southern Ukraine. As I said, he he built the city, although I should say there was another town there before. Um, there was a Cossack community. The Cossacks are Ukrainians. There were Crimean Tartars. There were other, other people in the region. But he conquered it for Russia and, and became really the symbol of, of the Russian empire. Putin, the current president of Russia, has always been a great admirer of Potemkin and is known to want to emulate what he did, you know, to, as I said, be a, be a conqueror and an, an imperial leader. Potemkin is also famous for something else, um, which is that when the empress, Catherine, came to visit that region, supposedly he built these villages along her route and painted them nice colors and populated them with you know, fake peasants who were, you know, doing dances and cheering. And then every time she would pass one of them, he would tear one down and build one up. These are the famous Potemkin villages. And we still use that expression Potemkin village when we want to talk about something fake. So he's simultaneously the symbol of empire and he's the symbol of something that's false. And we thought that was a good metaphor to use as the opening for the piece Particularly given that Kherson was, until November, occupied by the Russians, and when they left, they took Potemkin's bones with them. So Potemkin was buried underneath the nave of this cathedral. There's a little trap door in the, in the bottom of the church. When we, we went there and we went, we asked the priest, sort of in between services, we went on a Sunday, would he open it and let us in? We went down and we were shown this kind of slab of stone where Potemkin used to lie until the Russians at some in, in late October surrounded the church, went in, took the coffin, and left. And we had an amusing time, you know, on our way back from Kherson when we were on our way to Kiev, wondering what they were doing with these bones and what did it mean and did it signify this or that and did it mean they were never coming back or was it Putin's obsession with Potemkin and the Russian Empire? And we, when then when we were in Kiev, we had an interview with the president of Ukraine, with President Zelensky. And so we asked him, you know, what do you think of this grave robbery? And he was completely dismissive. You know, he said, oh, he said, they don't even know, they had no idea whose bones they were taking. They just steal everything. You know, they steal washing machines, they steal cell phones, they steal you know, paintings from the art gallery. They stole raccoons from the zoo. This is a true story. And from Kia, the region, they stole urinals. So I don't care, essentially, he was saying, and we didn't miss Potemkin. And so we thought this this made a, this made a nice opening conundrum with which to begin a story of Russia's attempt to reconquer its empire, the Ukrainian reaction to that, um, and also this element of falsehood, you know, this this idea that Russia is create, you know, when, when they occupy these territories, they announce that now they've restored, you know, historical Russia to its true ownership. But of course, nobody wants them to be there. So there's this element of falsehood and fakery once again. Well, and I just thought it was such a great way to orient us 
in time through the eyes of both sides, right? Because Russia lacks this self-awareness that they, that Putin is consumed with this guy who maybe means empire to him, but means Potemkin village to everybody else and is consumed with the past. Whereas Zelensky was like, I don't want to talk about the past. Like, this is not what this is about. We are living this every day. And this matters not only very much to our present, but to our future. And I think both Zelensky and you through your article articulate like, this is not just about Ukraine, but why this matters to everyone, including Americans, is what this could mean for the future of the region and what it means to citizens all over the world that are struggling with invasions or autocracy or struggling for democracy. Yeah, no, I mean, we we felt that the, you know, the Ukrainians very much define themselves that way. I mean, they 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 are uh, I mean it's 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 a notably kind of grassroots bottom up organized society actually they've always been very good at creating civic organizations and protest movements they've always, they've often been pretty bad at creating state institutions but that's served them pretty well during this war I mean even the way they fight which we describe in the article which is it's not quite centralized hierarchy army the way you're used to thinking of it. It's, you know, there are volunteer groups that are really important and there are outsiders who come and fund the development of drones. And there are Ukrainians who come back from Silicon Valley to, you know, to pitch in and volunteer. Um, and, and the war is really fought in that, you know, in that way, you know, whereas, of course, they're fighting this autocratic state where, you know, there's a centralized command where the soldiers you know, you Russian soldiers are fighting just in order not to die. They're not fighting in order to keep their own land or to, you know, or to protect their families the way Ukrainians are. And the Ukrainians see this as a war between two sets of two ways of living, really. You know, you know, we're we want to live in an open society. We want to be integrated with the rest of the world. We want to when the war is over, we want to get back and focused on new technology and how it can make people's lives better. And we're fighting a regime that's really locked in this 19th century idea about empire and conquest and, you know, who's bigger and who's and who's bloodier and who can kill more people. And and that is a struggle that is understood in lots of funny places around the world. You know, right after the war broke out, a Venezuelan friend who was quite a prominent dissident there, and I saw him in Washington and he walked me over to the, there's a part of the Venezuelan embassy that was controlled essentially still by the opposition to the Chavez regime. And then this huge Ukrainian flag hanging outside. And I sort of was taken aback. I was like, well, how, tell me why Venezuela feels attached to Ukraine. He said, are you kidding? You know, it's our struggle. I mean, we, you know, we also are fighting this, you know, this ugly autocratic dictatorship. And Russia is actually a backer of Venezuela now. And, you know, we really want the Ukrainians to win. Um, and I had the same conversation with Iranians. I had the same conversation in Taiwan when I was there last October. People see this really as a as a war against it's against Russia, but it's also against this modern networked autocracy. I mean, it's not a it's we aren't in a cold war. It's not you know it's not that black and white. And these are countries that have very different ideologies, and I don't think they all even necessarily like each other much. But yeah, I mean the Russians. And the Chinese and the Iranians cooperate in various ways. They borrow tactics from one another. I mean, the Iranians are giving the Russians these kind of killer drones to help them win. The Chinese are helping the Russians get around sanctions. So it's a it, it feels to a lot of people in a lot of countries like a struggle for freedom that they recognize. It also feels to me like it is such a statement about whether we're going to just descend into complete nihilism. When I first started reading about the tension, the possibility that Russia would invade Ukraine, I found a lot of pieces that were very sort of equivocal about what does Putin really want? What would the American interest really be here? How big of a deal would this be? And it has been encouraging for the most part to see people coalesce around the idea that it's actually pretty simple that it is a territorial invasion, <laughs> that it is wrong. I love that your piece says this is what winning would look like. There, There is a definition of winning here that we don't have to be so mealy-mouthed about. And I wonder what brings that clarity for you. So I've, I've been paying attention to Ukraine and Eastern Europe for a long time. Like, you know, I'd like to say, you know, before it was fashionable, although that sounds kind of superficial. <laughs> You, you know, I, I, I was very, I, was, I wasn't involved personally, but I mean, I wrote a lot about the 2014 invasion and I have written a book about Ukraine and Ukrainian history, you know, which again, seemed like a fairly obscure thing to do at the time. And 
you, you know, I'm, I'm also, you know, I listen to what they say and how they say it. And so in the, in the piece, I, I presented what they see as a, you know, as a way the war will end. I mean, remember that there is a way the war could, we could have a, we could have a halt to the fighting that doesn't stop the war. I mean, we could have a ceasefire right now, you know, which would leave the Russians in charge of some of the occupied territory, quite, you know, a lot of, it would leave them, you know, with the ability to continue repressing, prosecuting, arresting, deporting the Ukrainians who live in the occupied territory, including this horrible deportation of children, taking them away from their parents. We could allow them to to stay in that, you know, in, in that position. And what would that mean? That would mean that down the road in, you know, three years or five years or maybe three months or five months, the war would begin again. The Russians would rearm, regroup and, and reinvade. And that's essentially what happened after 2014. You know, we said, okay, you know, we're going to essentially let the Russians keep Crimea and this little piece of eastern Ukraine and not keep business as usual. And the Russians interpreted that as, okay, we're allowed to do it again. So if we really want the war to end, and I mean end it forever, then we need to listen to what the Ukrainians say. And they say, we have only one set of international borders. They were the ones recognized when we became an independent state in 1991. We all voted for them, including in Crimea, by the way. There was a national plebiscite, you know, do you want Ukrainian independence? And, you know, it was numbers are mostly over 90 percent, you know, it's a little bit less in the east, but not even that much, you know, some 80 percent. And these are our borders. And for the war to be over, Russia needs to leave, leave the region the way, you know, we made Saddam Hussein leave Kuwait, you know, with the way you know, we need to we need to return to the map as it was, and then the war is over. In addition to that, we need some sense of safety. So the war is over and it's not going to restart again. So Ukraine belongs to some kind of security community or there's some kind of security guarantee, probably not NATO because that's hard to arrange and it requires all the NATO states to vote on it, but something. And we need some kind of justice. You know, we need some recognition of the harm that was done and we need some compensation for the damage that was done, you know, the cities that were destroyed and the buildings destroyed. And that's what we want. And that, and, and if we get that, then the war is over for good. And we don't have to, you know, we, we all move on. And, you know, we get to talk about technology and building a university and new universities in Ukraine or whatever it is the president really wants to get on with doing. And that's what they say. And I don't really hear from anyone else a description of how the war can end permanently that sounds any better than that. As I say, I mean, you can get people saying, well, we need a ceasefire now. And I, I understand that position. People want the fighting to stop. But that doesn't that doesn't fulfill these other issues. You know, doesn't that doesn't explain how it's going to end forever. That doesn't explain how the Ukrainians feel some compensation. And that doesn't explain how we create the sense of safety. I mean, actually, when we were there, the we had dinner with the defense minister one night and the defense minister said to us, you know, for me, the war is over and we and our victory means that I can get on a plane in Kiev. And remember, right now there's no commercial air traffic to Ukraine. I can get on a plane to Kiev. I can fly to The Hague. He's a lawyer. And I can take part in, you know, in the war crimes trials. You know, I'm quitting my job as defense minister and I'm going to do that. When that happens, the war is over. And that seems to me actually a pretty good definition of victory and, and one that's reasonable. I mean, nobody's talking about occupying Moscow. You know, there's no... There's no vision of the ending of the war that includes conquest of Russian territory. You know, nothing like that. We're just talking about the Russians going home. And I understand the simplicity and the clarity of that. I think what I struggle is I'm not sure the European allies or the Biden administration agrees with and can articulate those same goals because I think it's so tied up in not just what would be right for the Ukrainian people, but what is realistic with regards to Russia. Now, our track record with talking about what's realistic when it comes to Russia, I don't think is great in that we thought they were just going to steamroll in. And every time, you know, I know you quote a Ukrainian who says, every time you think we can't do it, we do it. But it feels like there has to be a, a articulated vision for what that means to Russia, not just that you guys go home, but it, and I think you maybe were one of the first people to articulate, like, it's going to have to mean something different for Putin. And I feel like that's where we run up against a wall with Europe and America. It's fair enough. I mean, even, you know, I can't promise you that that Ru Russia will change, but you're right that for the war to be really over, not just over temporarily, as I said, there needs to be some kind of change in Russia. And it does not have to be regime change. And Russia does not have to be a democracy. 
but there needs to be somebody in the Kremlin, some decision in the Kremlin to say the war was a mistake and Ukraine is an independent country and we're going home. You know, that's happened in other wars. And it's also even other nuclear powers have done. I mean, the United States left Vietnam, you know, um, actually more recently we left Afghanistan. I mean, those are those are different. You know, those are far away places. Ukraine is closer. But there are other examples. I mean, there's so France in 1962 was had had this massive colonial war in Algeria. And at that time, Algeria was described as part of metropolitan France. It was considered very close. Many French people had gone to live there. Yet there was a decision taken. This just isn't worth it anymore. And we're coming home. And there was a very tumultuous decision in France at that time. There was a like a coup attempt and there was an assassination attempt on General de Gaulle, who was then the, the president of France. And it was very tumultuous. But they made that decision um, because it just wasn't worth it anymore. And so there are these examples of countries, even nuclear powers or colonial powers or imperial powers, deciding it's not worth it. And so some that has to happen. And I mean, the Ukrainians talk a lot about what is the how to achieve that politically? So the the end game is is political as well as military. So it's what is the defeat or the change or the what is the thing that has to happen that will that will make that change? Because really, that more than any particular percentage of territory conquered or any particular city or place that matters the most. And you know, they the Ukrainians have been. I mean, there has been some. I don't know how to put this, I mean, delicately, but I mean, there have been these odd events that have happened in Moscow over the last few weeks. There was a, there was a, you know, a, a sort of nationalist blogger, a, you know, a very, a very aggressive imperialist ideologue was murdered in Moscow. You know, maybe that was the Ukrainians, maybe it was not. Uh, um, and there have been, there have been a number of little odd incidents that may well, may very well be part of a Ukrainian campaign to convince the Russians that it's just not worth it. And we may see a bit more of that as well. Well, and I don't know why we don't just believe them. Whatever they think is necessary to get there, they're the experts at this point. I don't know why we argue with them every time they say they need something. That's just me personally. You know, for sort of the first part of the war in particular, there was a lot of fear that, you know, maybe Putin was crazy. Maybe he was going to start a nuclear war. Maybe he was going to invade NATO states. Um, and maybe, you know, and that that might have been a well-grounded fear. I mean, I do think that if he conquered Ukraine the way he thought he would and taken Kiev in three days and the rest of the country in six weeks, I do think that Poland might have been next or the Baltic states. Remember that Putin remembers, I mean, he was he was a KGB officer in, in East Germany in Dresden in 1989. So he remembers when the Soviet empire went, went to Berlin. So, you know, I think all that wasn't impossible. And there was a lot of feeling at the beginning of the war that we need to be cautious and what we can do. You know, we don't want to be too provocative. And I really think that that um, we've passed that moment where that was necessary. As I said, I understand where it came from. But, you know, we're now in a different stage. I mean, it's clear that you know, we, we did give them long range weapons and that didn't cause nuclear war. And we, you know, we have um, helped them and that didn't cause and we are giving them intelligence and so on. And so I agree with you that, you know, the faster the war is over and the faster we convince the Russians to leave, um, you know, the more quickly we can move on and do other things and the more quickly, you know, Ukraine can recover. So at this point, I genuinely I agree with you. I don't understand why we just don't. Yeah. Let them close the deal. Let them close the deal, finish the war, and end it. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. 
It's just the truth that makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. I can feel the caution of the past two decades of my entire adult life saying, you know, we don't want to talk about regime change. It it could end another way. I struggle to understand how much of this war is just about Putin. And I especially wonder what your thoughts are about the use of paramilitary forces. Like, how much is this about Russia versus Putin? And to what extent does it matter that he's hiring mercenaries to, to fight instead of this being the kind of effort from Russia that you see in Ukraine? So it's it's a Russian society now has become, you know, in, in a way it's been educated to be apathetic. So mm. most Russians don't participate in political life or public life at all. You know, there isn't like a public sphere the way we, you know, the way we think of it. People don't argue over politics at the dinner table much outside of a few little intellectual circles. And most people think that anything to do with politics is dangerous. And that's been useful for Putin because it means that, you know, there's no organized movement to depose him. But also in the context of this war, it's created a strange phenomenon. I mean, there he goes on TV. He just did it again a couple of days ago. And he says, you know, this is a war for Russia and it's about our survival and so on. And but nobody is signing up to fight. I mean, it's not like there's a mass movement of people, you know, rushing to join the war and rushing to, you know, put on uniforms. And on the contrary, hundreds of thousands of people have left the country to avoid conscription, you know, to avoid being there during the war. And some of them are the most, you know, the best educated, the most talented people are gone. I mean, actually, almost everybody I know who lived in Moscow is gone now. And so, you know, and so he he doesn't have this groundswell of support or this enormous popular opinion behind him that anybody can see. I mean, I, that, does, that doesn't mean there's an anti-war movement either, but it, it just means people are have kind of checked out. You know, they're like, you know, OK, it's happening somewhere else. We don't want to know too much about it. We don't want to hear about it. And we're staying out of it. So, you know, so so it's not, to, to, you know, to that extent, I mean, you're right to point to the mercenaries. I mean, there is a there is a, you know, the mercenary army. This is the Wagner group, it's called. Um, has been doing the bulk of the fighting in the in the north, which is which is where the the worst fighting has been over the last um, few months. You know, the regular army appears to be struggling. It's a war that a few ideologues and the president are committed to fighting, and everybody else is is pretty, you know, men. Hmm. Is the drama that gets reported about Wagner and the Kremlin is that real? 
and something that we should invest a lot of time in understanding? Or is it kind of a distraction, like they'll work that out and this will continue and we need to just press on with arming Ukraine for a counteroffensive? So it's very hard to know. It does seem like there is a conflict between this, you know, the mercenaries and the mainstream army and that they have a, um, you know, they have different goals and they have different ways of fighting. And, uh, you know, the Wagner group says the Russian army doesn't give them ammunition. I mean, I, it's hard to know whether that's true either. But there, there does seem to be discontent about the army's performance, and that seems to be real. Uh, and it also seems to be real the fact that Prigozhin, this is the head of the Wagner group, is allowed to, to talk the way he does about the army, also means he has some kind of power, some kind of protection mm-hmm. inside the establishment. So, so yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are conflicts between in the military, there are conflicts in the security apparatus. We know there were conflicts inside the FSB. This is their secret police. Um, political police, you know, they, some people there were also not happy about the war. We know the Russian business community is unhappy about the war. We know that the cultural community is unhappy about the war. There have been some leaked phone calls. We've we've heard, you know, where people who think that nobody's listening to them, you know, curse out the president and, you know, condemn the war, um, you know, in private. So, yeah, there's a lot of conflict inside Moscow about the war. And that's, of course, the Ukrainians know that. And it's really that conflict that they're hoping that they're hoping that it increases. I mean, remember this again, this was supposed to be over in three days. You know, the Russians arrived in the when they when they went over the border, you know, in February of 2022, they were carrying with them their dress uniforms that they were going to wear at the victory parade in Kiev. They, they found them. the Ukrainians found them when they, you know, and so. You know, you know, the contrast between that and where we are now, you know, more than a year later with, you know, the Kremlin setting up, you know, um, you know, air defense systems just in case Moscow is bombed and, you know, tens of thousands of people coming home in body bags and loss of huge loss of tanks and, and vehicles and weapons, um, you know, the destruction of what had been, we all thought, the second largest army in the world. I mean, it really has been um, a blow is just a question that the question is, when will that begin to matter? Like who who can make it matter? One of the weird things about Russia right now is that, you know, at least when we were talking about the Soviet Union, there was sort of there were other institutions. So there was a Politburo, you know, and there was the Soviet Communist Party. Now, really, there just isn't anything else. There's Putin. And, you know, not only are we not sure who would follow him if something were to happen to him. Um, we're not sure how that person would be chosen. You know, this is a completely mm. autocratic state with no, you know, no succession mechanism. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's so unstable and why it's so hard to make predictions. What I really appreciate, though, in your writing is that even though this is a very clarifying situation and that we have a clear violator of international law who is acting abhorrently, and a clear sort of country that has exceeded everyone's expectation is sort of doing the right thing. We have a good guy. We have a bad guy. I appreciate how you don't shy away from the fact that it doesn't it doesn't lead us to this sort of Cold War situation where we have a global situation where everyone sorts neatly. We have a very complicated global situation, even if this situation that exposes and helps us clarify aspects of, you know, democracy and autocracy. It doesn't it doesn't lessen the complications. How do you think about that as you when we when we zoom out from okay, well this is what we hope happens in Ukraine and this is what we hope happens in Russia. Well, that's not simple when we think about China or Iran or the relationships Russia has formed in Africa, not to mention our relationships around the globe. Yeah, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic a few months ago last year in which I looked at these different, the the relationship between these different autocracies. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not a Cold War situation. There isn't one ideology. You know, you have nationalist Russia and Maoist China and, you know, um, communist Cuba and Bolivarian, whatever it is, Venezuela and theocratic Iran. A lot of, a lot of these are countries that didn't have anything to do with one another historically. What does Iran have to do with Venezuela before the, the, you know, modern events? But they have found reasons to support and help one another because all of them have, in, in this sense, the same enemy. And their enemy is their own democratic oppositions. So the ideas of liberal democracy and the ideas of, represented you know, in their minds by the United States and, and Europe and, and some other countries 
That's what they're fighting against. So they are willing to help one another out. So, you know, the Venezuelan regime would have toppled a long time ago if it wasn't for Russia, China and Iran. You know, Mm. Belarus is a very, very weak country, very, very unpopular leader. He also would have fallen if, you know, the Russians hadn't come in and rescued him. Um, And so they do work together. I mean, they don't, I don't think, necessarily even like each other much. I mean, these are very transactional relationships. But they they're willing to help one another out and really to prevent the victory of any kind of democratic force or movement, because they think that would be, you know, somehow, you know, inspirational to their own their own oppositions. Um, And so, yeah, we do have the phenomenon of Russia. Of course, Russia has been condemned by the, you know, by the democratic world and actually a lot of other countries. But there is a there is a core of that, you know, they aren't getting weapons from China, but China is helping them sell their oil and gas. You know, they they are getting weapons from Iran. Um, they do have some direct cooperation from Belarus, you know, which is right on their border. So there there is a kind of loose agglomeration of countries that work together. Actually, the, the expression that I came up with in the, that article was autocracy, Inc. You know, so it kind of functions like a like a, um, you know, like a, like a, like a big company, you know, with different parts that interact and have slightly different interests, but, you know, like a big conglomerate really that cooperates together when it, when it makes sense to do so. Uh, And that's really what we're talking about. Um, And there are holes in it. There are reasons why some of those countries, you know, want to, want to talk to us or trade with us some of the time and not, you know, but, but we, but we should be clear about there is a, I don't know if ideological is really the right word, but there's a structural element to it, too. You know, the autocracies support each other and they have a common interest in undermining democracies, including us. If we were to switch definitively in the United States from the current path of really funding Ukraine's survival to saying we are we are here for Ukraine's victory and we are going to give them what they say they need and we're going to do what they need us to do. How fearful of autocracy Inc. should we be in that process? I mean, actually, I think most of the leaders in the autocratic world, and this certainly includes Putin and it certainly includes Xi, um, the leader of China, are more impressed by strength than they are by, you know, calibration, rationality, diplomacy. And I actually think that a show of strength in Ukraine is a very important message to send to China. And and by the way, the Taiwanese think that too. You know, the Taiwanese mm. say, we want Ukrainians to win because they we, we think it's good for us. You know, and so, the, you know, sending the message that we will defend people and that there is a price to be paid for trying to change international borders, I think is worth doing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been very illuminating. Thank you for your reporting. And we will continue to be following your work as we try to understand what's happening there. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much to Ann Applebaum for joining us. Sarah, I'm trying to be a gardener this year. It's I'm a real amateur, but I have lots of good support around me. And I think that that's what is going to make it work. So I'm really digging it. Ha <laughs> see what I did there? Ah, that's really good. <laughs> Godspeed. I want to be a person who gardens. And I should say, look, I do have a type of green thumb. I have like 50 indoor plants. The oldest of which I believe is my ZZ plant that I bought when I got my job at the Senate in 2008. I think that's right. 2008. So that's my oldest indoor plant that I've managed to keep alive. So I love an indoor plant. But when we take this project outside, I just fall apart. I don't like weeding indoor plants. There's just a little more wiggle room because they're not exposed to the weather as far as like if I forget to water them. Many of them thrive in that scenario when I forget to water them. But the garden is so needy and it just, I think it requires a level of patience and attention span that I do not have. You would think this would come naturally to me having grown up on a farm. However, I grew up with my mom and my dad's mother, my grandmother, Joy, both of whom did plenty of weeding and farm helping as kids and wanted no part of it as adults. Ha <laughs> ha! Smart ladies. They married farmers after promising that they wouldn't because they loved my dad and granddad, but they did not <laughs> intend to be farm wives in the traditional mm-hmm. sense of the word. And so my grandmother Joy said that what they had at the IGA in terms of produce was just fine for her, and she did not need a garden. My grandfather was a very, very sweet man prone to grand gestures. And so when my grandmother said... Maybe we could do a little bit of corn. He planted using the machinery he used for the farm and planted so much corn that there were days and days and days of my mom and grandmother and me to an extent freezing all that corn, like putting it up for the winter. And the profanity from my grandmother would make a sailor blush. I mean, she was so mad about all this corn. So that's the vibe of the women in my family coming into this situation. So I know nothing about gardening. But my mother-in-law is one of those people who can, like, remove a seed from a cucumber and just take it outside and throw it on the ground, and suddenly there's a vine. She's amazing. So she came up and helped us, and our neighbors, uh, Jen and Brian, are going to do the garden with us. That's part of what I needed here. I needed community around the garden because I find it very intimidating individually. And I also, if it happens to be successful, don't want to, like, beg people to take zucchini. You know, I like a plan for two families to share what the garden has here. So with my mother-in-law's, like, totally expert supervision and labor, I mean, she just, she went outside and started digging before I got the girls on the school bus when she was here. (laughs) 
and Chad doing lots of work and our neighbors in it with us, I'm feeling feeling pretty good about it. I come from opposite experience, particularly my mother's parents. Uh, my daddy bud and my meemaw were like expert gardeners. We'll still talk about it. And my daddy bud, still, he probably still has in his 80s a, a, a few little rows. He loves to garden. And so you get really spoiled because he would bring produce. And let me tell you, the produce of the IGA, not as good. Not the same. No, it's not. Not anymore close. He brings corn and he brings, of course, zucchini. You're still going to be giving away zucchini. I think you need to just adjust your expectations. <laughs> it's just that's how zucchini rolls. And I love so much of gardening. I love the three sisters, how you grow the beans and the corn and the zucchini all together. Like, I just love all that. We've done it a couple of times. We had some raised beds at our old house. Nicholas did the community garden during covid but I just, it's not who I am. I just have to accept that about myself, especially now. Like, we travel so much this summer. It just, like, wouldn't work. But, I, I mean, I love the vision. I love the metaphor. And I certainly love to eat food grown in a home garden. But I'm not a homesteader. I also want chickens. And Nicholas like, get a grip. You have to have a babysitter for your chickens when you leave town. I'm like, oh, right. Okay, I don't want to do that. Like, I just, I like the vision. The reality never works out for me. Well, the reality right now is so perfect because I get to go out every morning, which I do before Ellen gets on the bus. We go check the garden together. And my joy when I see that there is like a little tiny peep of green coming up through the dirt, I'm amazed every time mm -hmm. I take not a single seed for granted. And I just think it's a beautiful thing. My tomatoes look so happy right now. My cabbages look so happy. My corn is coming up in the rows that we planted. The deer haven't eaten any of it yet. I just feel really proud. I do. I do. I love to see a thing grow. When my tulip bulbs come up, I'm like, look at this miracle of life. Mm -hmm. I liked it. It took me, you know, a couple decades of life before I noticed that so many trees, as the leaves start to grow, it's like the reverse of fall. They come out like a, like a burnt, like an orange, and then they turn green. It's just like little things like that you notice for the first time. And you're like, life. I love it here. I love growing things. My ZZ plant, about every time in the spring, some more shoots come up. And this year I got like three. Amazed. Delighted. I was like, this is incredible. Because I, I, again, I do love indoor plants. Indoor plants are my sweet spot. I love an indoor potted plant. I like to have them with me all winter where we're just like pep talking each other. I'm like, guys, your fiddle leaf trees, you will be outside in that Kentucky humidity and in mere moments. Just hang with me. You can do it. It's just something about the garden. The garden is way more labor intensive than having indoor plants. That's for dang sure. Well, and it's temporary. You know, it's not it's not that long term relationship. I could not keep a plant alive to save my life until I turned about 40. And I don't know what it was, but it was kind of like when I was in college, I remember fighting with our laundry machines. We had the kind of washers and dryers on the floors in the dorms that you had to put quarters in mm -hmm. and it would get stuck all the time and like jammed. And it was such a scene. And. Suddenly, when I became an RA, I knew how to operate those machines. I didn't have, like, a lesson. It was just, like, one day a miracle occurred. I was an RA, and I could operate the machines for everyone else. And I feel like that's what happened to me with the plants. One day a miracle occurred, and suddenly I wasn't killing them left and right. This kind of conversation would have been really triggering for me when I was in my, like, late 20s and early 30s because I felt like I didn't have enough time to do anything ever. So hearing people mm. talk about the delights of life, like gardening and reading books and doing really anything other than working and surviving was hard to listen to. So I just want to say, if that's you, I see you and get it. And I am amazed at what you have time for when you can say to your children, go take a shower. Like Word. when they can do some things themselves, just so much opens up for you. <laughs> and whatever that is, I hope you enjoy it as much as I'm enjoying seeing these little bits of corn peek through the soil. Yeah, I became a plant person probably, well, I had this easy plant. I mean, I tried. This easy plant is notoriously hard to kill, though. It's not quite the accomplishment. I'll make it sound like um, having it for so long. But probably 35 years old. I think I told Nicholas when you're, I'm, I'm going to be a plant lady. Go get me a plant. Um, and I found some ways around the ones I kill. This weekend, I made the Lego orchid set because I cannot keep an orchid alive. I don't think it's me. I don't think I have enough sunlight. I have a very light-filled house, but I don't have a lot of intense direct light because of the direction my home faces. And that's what orchids like. But my Lego orchid is so pretty. So like, I just try to find workarounds, like friends with gardens, like having a friend with a pool or a friend with a pickup truck or a boat. We have a Lego orchid, but the orchid is actually the first plant that I was able to keep alive. I don't know how. I just miraculously put it in exactly the right space. 
and it loves that light and I, you will move it over my dead body. But it, the leaves have all fallen off a couple times and they come back when the blooms come back. I just feel like I am living my very best existence. I do almost nothing to it. I give it a tiny bit of water once a week. I say, you're beautiful. I appreciate you. And then I walk away. That orchid wants its space. I usually do worse with plants that require an enormous amount of neglect. Like, I will kill a succulent because I like to water things. I really just think with the orchids, I just don't have enough light. I just think they like a lot of light, and I don't have a space that with it quite that much. But that's okay because I have my Lego orchid, and it's so pretty. So, I, I mean, I have all kinds of plants. I've achieved the dream. I have a plant that's literally attached itself to my bathroom wall and is growing up the wall like ivy which I feel very proud of, even though I did basically nothing to make that happen. But, oh, God, it's the coolest look. But, yeah, I do love to see things grow. I think it is life-giving in every sense of the word. Well, I'm going to take some time off in June, and I hope to come back in July and be talking about my harvest. Jane's like, I've got to get you that special basket, Mom. you got to go out with a basket and collect the goods of the garden. I'm like, that sounds like a perfect, phenomenal July vision for me. Beautiful. Love it. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We always appreciate your time and attention. Please don't forget to check out the links in our show notes to our premium community options on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. Both places offer a two-week free trial, so you can check out the work we're doing there before you commit any dollars, but it really is your support of the show that is so meaningful to us. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pettins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Vallelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Danny Osmond, Jen Ross. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.